0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. We are back, episode number 35 of Bitcoin Magazine Live, and we're going to kick things off with one of my favorite Bitcoin writers out there, Vijay Boyapati. Thank you so much for joining us, the author of Bullish Case for Bitcoin, both the article and the book of the same name. Vijay, thank you. How are you doing, man? Thanks.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Q. It's awesome to be with you and Chris, and I love talking about Bitcoin, so I'm glad to talk about Bitcoin with you.
0: You're, you're at the right show to talk about Bitcoin. With us. <laughs> I guess we should start at the very beginning, and maybe if you don't mind sharing a little bit about the uh, the story of how you were orange-pilled and maybe some of the things that didn't really click with you the first time you heard about Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so... Before, a little bit of context, before I found out about Bitcoin, I had left my job at Google to go campaign for Ron Paul in the 2008 uh, presidential election. And I was super excited about what he was talking about and the message of um, freedom and the US not messing in the affairs of other countries and sound money. He talked a lot about sound money and, and why the US had really gone astray. But he He didn't actually do that well in in that election. There were a lot of powerful forces that prevented his message getting out. So, in one of the early debates, Fox News just decided that they wouldn't even allow him on the stage despite having raised more money than any of the other candidates. So I actually felt pretty dejected after two thousand and eight for a couple of years about the political process, and you know, trying to advance some of these ideas that I think are so important. But then I came across Bitcoin in 2011, which is really life-changing and such an exciting thing for me as someone who believes in human freedom. Um, And I I came across Bitcoin uh, because I had a bet with a friend and that the bet was for a single silver coin. We were both kind of hard money investors. We believed in gold and we liked silver. And we had a bet about the Federal Reserve and Federal Reserve policy and whether they would increase interest rates or not. And I won the bet. And my friend said, Well, I can give you the silver coin. It was worth $50 at the time. But I think I should give you something. I I want to give you bitcoins. This is it's a new form of money, and I want to give you bitcoins. And I was like, I have no idea what that is, but sure, because my friend is probably the best investor i know and so when he tells me i should pay attention to something or that you know i should take that instead of silver I I kind of pay attention and and so I had this was 2011 and you know th- there wasn't any infrastructure really to Bitcoin there was just the Bitcoin network and so I had to download the core software and it started downloading the blockchain and my little laptop which I was running it on the fan started going crazy my laptop was like felt like it was melting and it, it took a couple of hours and then I was finally able to create an address and he showed me that he sent five Bitcoins to me. It was uh, five at the time. The price was about $10. And he showed me on a very primitive block explorer, like, look, I sent you five Bitcoins. And it it made no sense to me at all. It was just numbers and letters. And and I had no idea what was going on. And yeah, so that that was how I got introduced to Bitcoin Uh, to sort of finish the story of those Bitcoins. I gave that laptop to an ex-girlfriend just a year or two after that, because I it wasn't worth much. It was probably worth about $50 or $100 at the time. And I completely forgot about it. And then in 2017, I was like, oh, wow, that laptop's worth a lot. It's worth like, it's worth 10 grand. It's worth 20. It's worth 50. It's worth 100 grand. And and so I was like, I should probably email her. And (laughs) I emailed her and Uh, unfortunately, she lost it. She told me she lost it in a hotel. And and I completely believe her too, because you can look on the blockchain, those Bitcoins have never moved. They're dead. The private keys are dead. It's probably in a dumpster somewhere. So those, my first Bitcoins are gone. (laughs) So all Bitcoin holders, you can thank me. The total supply is not 21 million. It's 21 million minus at least five yeah, so to, to get back to your other question, what what was the thing that really was a difficult thing for me to understand? I think probably the hardest part for me in the beginning was I had a background in Austrian economics and I understood why gold was valuable. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand why gold was valuable. And I thought, well, someone created this out of thin air. Why can't I just create my own? Why can't I just create VJ coin? And won't that you know, to sort of dilute the value of Bitcoin. That was probably my biggest hurdle. The fact that it wasn't tangible and had, you know, what Austrians kind of think of as intrinsic value. How can it have any value at all? And, and honestly, that question, because of my interest in economics, was my path down the rabbit hole. I just became so obsessed with how does this thing have value? It's just, it sort of defies economic logic at least logic that had existed for the last 50 years and so I've spent the last probably about a decade trying to figure that out I think I I have some pretty good answers and I I wrote an article and then a book about it uh, to to provide a framework to think about this because it's not obvious and when people come along and their first instinct is this doesn't make sense I don't want to invest I don't want to own this thing because it seems kind of weird and scammy and like, how can something that's created out of thin air have value? I think that's actually a fairly natural reaction. Uh, it's certainly what I had.
0: <laughs>
1: One of my favorite things
0: about your article in your book, uh, despite having a background in Austrian economics, you make it accessible for every man to just be able, or every person to be able to read it, digest it, and really understand what questions they need to ask next. It's such a great jumping off point. I want to ask you sort of what, what inspired you to write that? Was it like, I myself love to write so that I can learn it better. And if someone else can read it, even just one person, great. But what was your sort of inspiration for writing the original article?
1: Yeah, I'm the same as you, Q. I, I, I think it helps me as well to to write stuff. And it, it. I started thinking about it in 2017 or maybe it was late 2016 and Bitcoin had sort of started to come out of that bear market. You remember the long winter of 2013, 14, and 15. And that was really a difficult time. And it wasn't obvious back then, in the way it's obvious now that Bitcoin kind of goes through these cycles. And then, you know, even though you can have a slump, it'll, it'll come back. Uh, it wasn't obvious then. And, and a lot of people had given up on Bitcoin, even people who were really prominent in the space, like Mike Hearn is an example of someone who was super prominent in the space. And one of the first people was to have email interactions with Satoshi and built his own uh, Bitcoin core client. Uh, and he very publicly said, I give up. This is not, Bitcoin is not going the right direction. It's a failure. I'm leaving. I'm going to do something else. And it was in the New York Times. And a lot of people thought, okay, this is it for Bitcoin. But by 2016, it became clear that Bitcoin was coming back. The price was continuing to rally, and and I started getting questions from friends and family out of nowhere that I didn't expect because I'd been in that winter and I'd kind of been like, well, you know, maybe this is going to take a really long time for Bitcoin to become relevant. Uh, but I got questions from friends and family like, "Tell me about Bitcoin. Tell me about." Why is it going up? What? Why is it valuable? What is it? Should I put some money into it? And I, I felt like there were a lot of misconceptions, much more than now. There were a lot of misconceptions in 2016 about Bitcoin from an investment perspective. Uh, is it money? Why don't people use it to buy you know, coffee and bread and stuff at the grocery store? It doesn't seem like it's money. So what is it? And I thought, okay, I've thought about this at the time for, you know, five or six years. And I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what Bitcoin was and why it had value. And I thought, I want to write an article that I can point my friends and family to. So I can say, instead of explaining to each one, I can just give them a link and say, here's the explanation. And so I wrote the article and it really, it took the better part of a year to write it. It's fairly long article. And I had a job at the time and I had a newborn and I was writing like one sentence a day, <laughs> and I, I wanted to finish it actually by early 2017 at the beginning of the bull market, but it ended up getting finished right at the end of 2017. Uh, and so it was my way of explaining to friends and family, this is why Bitcoin has value. This is why I think it's going up and why it's significant. I had no idea that it would be read as much as it was, Not, none at all. It's been read over a million times. It's been translated into 20 languages by volunteers. Never expected anything like that would happen. I was hoping that maybe a couple of people on Wall Street would read it and I'd get lucky and they'd be like, oh yeah, Bitcoin's cool. Maybe I'll put some money into it. But it became much bigger. And I think that's because there's a huge demand out there in the population to understand Bitcoin. I spoke just a few days ago to six uh, very smart very successful medical professionals, all women who wanted to know about Bitcoin and they were curious and they had great questions and and so I feel like there's a huge latent demand to understand this new technology and, and I really feel like we're so early when I speak to people who are in various professions trying to figure out what to do with their savings, it's like, I I still don't quite understand Bitcoin. Can you explain it to me? And I also find that when I do explain it to them, when I try and break it down and explain money and the history of money and the evolution of money and how Bitcoin fits in with that, people get it and, and they get it and they get excited about Bitcoin. They're like, oh, I can see this is a better form of money. So yeah, it, that, that's kind of how the article came about. And it, it was more just for myself and my family. And it later on became bigger than I expected. And at the time uh, when I wrote it and published it, a lot of people asked me to turn it into a book. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't see anything extra I want to say over the article and the article's out there and it's free and people can just get it. But by 2020, the economic landscape had changed a lot because because of the pandemic and the Federal Reserve creating trillions and trillions of dollars. We we sort of moved into a much more inflationary world. And, and I thought this is actually a good time to revisit the article. And, and actually the Bitcoin ecosystem had matured a lot since 2017. I think it's a much more mature ecosystem in a lot of different ways. So I thought, okay, this is a good time to revisit the article. And expand upon it. And there was, I realized that there were some topics that were really critical that I had not covered in in the article. One of them is the history of Bitcoin. Where did it come from? Who who are the cypherpunks working on this idea of digital money, and what why did they fail, and why why did Bitcoin succeed? I thought that was a really important topic that I hadn't covered in my article. And the other question, which I think is really important, is what is Bitcoin? We had a huge debate in the Bitcoin community in from two thousand and thirteen up to two thousand and seventeen about what Bitcoin is and what its future should be. Uh, and that culminated in the block size war. and these two very different visions and camps within the uh, Bitcoin ecosystem resulted in a schism of splitting of the community, uh, uh, you know very sort of vitriolic and uh, angry, split of the community. And, and it was basically over the question of what is Bitcoin? And, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding and explanation of what Bitcoin is uh, and, and why the idea that Bitcoin as a medium of exchange doesn't make sense yet. And, and why it has to go through this evolution of first becoming a store of value, then transitioning to a medium of exchange and eventually becoming A unit of account. And and I sort of lay this out in detail in my book. Um, So that was a topic I thought was incredibly important. So I think that's been really, the, the narrative has changed so much since 2017. I think people now understand that. They understand Bitcoin is a store of value first. And it doesn't really make sense to go and buy your groceries with Bitcoin because there's so much upside to Bitcoin, the thing you should really be doing is holding it until we get maximum adoption. Once we get to maximum adoption, everyone owns some Bitcoin. That's when you want to start spending your Bitcoin and going to the grocery store and yeah uh, you know using something like the Lightning network to uh, to start spending your Bitcoin.
0: That, uh there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I want to just <laughs> highlight, highlight specifically for those in the audience, this is the cover of the book. You have seen it circulating online. This is what we are talking about today. So be sure to go and get a copy if you have not read it yet. One of my favorite things about this book, and you you bring it up, you touch on the history of cryptography. And you touch on, in the book, the specific examples of failed attempts at a digital currency. And in fact, that Bitcoin is not... He, it was not an original concept in the cryptography universe. It was very much a combination of these sort of failed attempts at a digital currency. Do you mind sort of discussing this a little bit with our audience and just what you saw when doing that research?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, so the, the community of people called cypherpunks were really actively working on creating a free internet in the, the early to mid-90s. They saw the potential of the internet, but they also saw a danger in the internet. And the danger was that we would move to this uh, kind of Orwellian surveillance society where everything we do, every transaction that we make is, is um, sort of overseen by the government. And so they wanted to use cryptography, which is a field of computer science and mathematics that studies codes and code breaking they wanted to use cryptography to make the internet free a place where you could communicate with people privately and you can transact privately and not have some authoritarian government say, no, you're not allowed to do that. No, you're not allowed to say that. And this was actually incredibly controversial at the time people now don't really appreciate it, but at the time, cryptography was, uh, considered a a military technology. And if you were to, let the code that allows cryptography to be done, if you were to transfer that to another country, it would be considered treason. And uh, the cryptographers at the time kind of pointed out that, hey, we have a first amendment in the United States and cryptography is essentially speech because you can take the algorithm Uh, the cryptographic algorithm and print it on a t-shirt and that's what a lot of them did they say said hey look are you going to censor me i'm wearing a t-shirt are you going to tell me what i'm doing is treasonous by wearing this t-shirt and there was a supreme court case which kind of came down in favor of that point of view and, and and that sort of made it so that uh the use of cryptography by uh civilians was okay because it's kind of part of the first, protected by the First Amendment. Anyway, so the cryptographers were very interested in using cryptography to allow transactions, uh, to allow sort of digital transactions that didn't have a government involved in any way. And uh, Tim May was one of the uh, They they were called um, crypto anarchists and they were called cypherpunks. And Tim May wrote a manifesto, uh, the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto, in I think 1992, laying out the case for a world in which you could transact using cryptography. And and the first attempt at at doing this was David Chow. He created this thing called a company called Digicash and a form of money called eCash, But the problem was he was using cryptography to create a new form of money, but that form of money was controlled by his company, a centralized company. And and the the flaw of centralization is that if that company is coerced by a government, well, the company fails, DigiCash actually went bankrupt, then the money disappears. You, You don't want that to happen. You don't want, if you're creating a new form of money that's not controlled by the government, you don't want it to be issued by some central authority. And so there were a bunch of cypherpunks, uh, names you might be familiar with, Adam Back, uh, Wei Dai, Nick Sabo. These guys realized this was a critical problem and they were working on how do we decentralize money? And there were, there were numerous attempts at this. Uh, Nick Szabo uh, created a, des- a design for Bitgold Wei Dai created uh, a system called B Money. Uh, Adam Back, sort of unrelated, created um, something called HashCash. And it was a way of making it expensive to send email spam. And he may not have realized it at the time, but it was like a foundational piece in making decentralized money possible. These guys were just tantalizingly close to getting decentralized money they were so close, but there were little flaws in all of their designs for making money. And, and actually Sabo's BitGold was never actually implemented. It was just a design, but anyway, so they, they were working on this in the nineties and they didn't quite get it to work and they weren't really sure how to fix it. And, and if, if you fast forward about a decade to the 2008 financial crisis, Most of the people in that community had given up and and thought this, we've tried, we've got all these kind of interesting designs, but none of of them seem to work. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe it's not possible to create a decentralized form of money. And that that was the general view of the people who were in the space. This is probably not possible. Then Satoshi comes along in 2008 and he posts this paper to this, you know, Email list of cypherpunks and cryptographers and says, Hey, I you guys have never heard of me before, but I've solved this problem. I've solved this problem of decentralized money. And a a lot of people on that email list didn't believe him because they had seen, you know, more than a decade of attempts to try and create digital money. And they had all failed. And so they, a lot of them, even people who are prominent in the Bitcoin space, you know, some very prominent core developers, said, no, that's not possible. this is why it's going to fail. But what Satoshi had done is he built on the work of the people who tried this before, and he arranged the cryptographic primitives in this very elegant way that provided a bunch of economic incentives and cryptographic guarantees that made digital money possible and it wasn't like he'd come up with a bunch of really out there new ideas he just rearranged the ideas that had been tried before in a very elegant way And, and he did he was able to come up with a solution to the problem of decentralized money and he solved an incredibly important problem in computer science known as the Byzantine generals problem and that made Bitcoin possible and it was a breakthrough it was like the moment fire was discovered the control of fire it's a different world. It, there's the prior to Bitcoin epoch and there's the after Bitcoin epoch. Now we have the ability to, to, to do something that was never possible in history. We can transfer value from one part of the earth to any other part of the earth almost instantly with, without anyone's permission or anyone's help. You don't need a bank, you don't need a government. I can send you money if, if you're in New Jersey or California or Bangladesh. Uh, as easily as I can send an email. And that that is a profound breakthrough for, for computer science, a pr- profound breakthrough for finance and economics. And this is why in my book, I say uh, Satoshi should be the second person ever to get to win both the Nobel Prize in economics and the Turing Award, which is the equivalent highest award that you can get in computer science. It's an incredible breakthrough. You know, people in this space kind of, I think, appreciate that. But The rest of the world is starting to to figure it out as well.
2: My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history.
0: Yeah, as, as you've said, as many of us say, we're still so early. The adoption is only just beginning. You touched on earlier how when you had originally written uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin, the article, you had hopes that people on Wall Street would read it and make decisions. And we're at a point now where just earlier this week, we saw the first mining ETF introduced in the public markets. We have miners continuously going public, Core Scientific most recently through an SPAC. What is it that you're seeing that you're liking about Bitcoin's implementation into Wall Street? And what are things you'd like to see changed?
1: So what I think we're seeing right now is the financialization of Bitcoin. And I know that there are a lot of people it, who, who were early in the space who were concerned about this and how this may pervert, you know, the ideals of Bitcoin. Just like the internet had some very idealistic thinking in the beginning, and the internet's changed in certain ways. I think people are worried that, oh, this is going to co-opt Bitcoin. It's bad. I actually think this is an inevitable part of the widespread adoption of Bitcoin. All of this financial infrastructure being built on top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the base layer of a new financial system, it's going to be, I believe, the reserve currency of the world. And we're going to have a new financial infrastructure built on top of it. And I think one of the realizations that the traditional financial world is coming to is that Bitcoin is the perfect collateral asset. It's incredibly good as a form of collateral. And what I mean by that is something as a financial institution that you can hold and is valuable and allows you to offer products to your clients. And if they, the, if the clients have some bad trades where they lose value, you can sell some of the collateral to cover the risk of them doing those trades. So a classic example of this is your financial institution and you want to allow your uh, clients to short certain things or trade derivatives or trade futures contracts. And if they do a bad job, you want to have something valuable so you can sell it down a little bit and cover the losses. Um, And and Bitcoin is a great form of collateral because when you possess it, it's not the obligation of anyone else. You hold the thing that's valuable. Uh, And that's the same as gold. When you hold a gold coin, you hold the thing that's valuable. It's not a promise of someone else. It's not uh, you need to go to some third party and uh, redeem something. It's the valuable thing in and of itself. It's called a bearer instrument. And the thing that Bitcoin has that's far superior to gold is it's easy to transmit. So as it and it's easy to possess. So you're a financial institution. You want collateral from your client. You can say just send it to me, and you can receive the collateral and 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 hold it within you know uh, a few minutes or an hour if you want a bunch of confirmations. And then you can offer all kinds of products. And 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 the first company who really saw. The, the use and the value of Bitcoin as collateral was BitMEX. They were the first company to offer uh, a futures contract on Bitcoin and allow people to bet on the future price of Bitcoin. But now you have all these traditional companies coming in like uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and, and Goldman Sachs. And they're realizing, wow, there's a big opportunity here. People uh, want to own this. They want to trade these derivative contracts. And and Bitcoin's a great form of collateral. And so that's what I think the future is for the financialization of Bitcoin is more and more institutions realizing that they should have a part of their company uh, capable of holding Bitcoin, custodying itself and offering products on top of Bitcoin. I, I think we're gonna see way more of this in the next two to three years where banks are gonna let people hold Bitcoin and then they're gonna offer things like interest on your Bitcoin which is cool, right? You can say, if you want to hold your Bitcoin here, we'll offer you 1% on your Bitcoin. And one, 1% on your Bitcoin is way better than 1% on your dollars because Bitcoin is a deflationary asset. The, the, there's never going to be more than 21 million. So if you're adding to your Bitcoin stack, that's really much more powerful than if you're adding to your dollar stack because your, your dollar stack is losing value naturally because it's an inflationary currency. So th- there's going to be a lot of this kind of financialization of Bitcoin in the future and a lot of products available to Bitcoin investors that aren't you know, widely available today.
0: To your point, we're even seeing now more and more companies begin to offer mortgages backed by Bitcoins as well. Is there, Absolutely. Industry, is there an industry that we have not yet approached as far as Bitcoin
1: goes that you're excited or expecting to see it enter in some capacity? Well, I think it's gonna to touch every industry that is associated with traditional finance because The loan market covers everything. People use loans to do all sorts of things. It's not just buy houses. You you can get loans for your business and loans to buy artwork or loans to uh, develop a new business. Um, uh, Credit financing is an integral part of our economy. And so Bitcoin is going to permeate all of that. Uh, But yeah, you're right. It's really cool. You can now do things like take loans against your Bitcoin, and use that loan to go and buy something. And the idea is kind of cool, right? If you have a Bitcoin position and you take a loan against it to buy a house, the idea is that because Bitcoin is generally over a long enough period, it only goes up. You you have to sell a smaller and smaller fraction of your Bitcoin to pay down the loan. So the, the idea is that you can live a lifestyle that you want to live, Uh, but not lose your entire Bitcoin stack.
0: That I mean, it's an exciting time to be here. We talk a lot in this industry, in this community, if you will, that Bitcoin fixes this. Uh, Mm -hmm. We sometimes tend to just say that very blanketly without explaining it, but I do appreciate the nuance of what you are talking about uh, specific to the credit market because it seems as though like a lot of people view Bitcoin and specifically the Lightning Network's largest competition is Visa's and MasterCard's. What are what are steps you would like to see Bitcoin take to overtake Visa and MasterCard while I do respect and understand that you wanna go store a value before we go medium of exchange?
1: I think the development of the Lightning Network is profoundly important. It paves the way for Bitcoin to be used as a medium of exchange. That will happen in places like El Salvador. I do think you will see more medium of exchange usage. One of the big difficulties of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange in Western countries is the tax treatment. When you buy some Bitcoin and it appreciates in value, and then you go buy some coffee with Bitcoin, that's a taxable event. And that's in such a pain in the butt. You don't want to you know, have to record or f- file taxes because you bought coffee. Uh, so in a way that actually helps Bitcoin's monetization because it creates an extra incentive for people to hold it uh, and and to see the, the appreciation in value. I mean, a place like El Salvador, where they've made it uh, legal tender, you can spend your Bitcoin without any tax consequences. So so you will, I, I believe, see more of that in, in places like El Salvador. I think it it will help to see financial institutions adopt the Lightning Network as well. It's still really in its infancy. I would say the Lightning Network today is the equivalent of Bitcoin in 2011 or 2012. It's going to be very, very important and it's it's growing very, very quickly. Um, But uh, it's still very new. We don't have much adoption from financial institutions, but cash... Uh, uh, Square Cash is uh, making it part of their system. So what when you have that easy on-ramp from Fiat into the Lightning Network, that's really cool. That allows things which haven't been possible before, like Jack Marler's Strike is a, a company that allows you now to send value around the world essentially instantly at almost no cost. By, by using the Lightning Network as a payment rail. Uh, so I think that's super cool and, and we're going to see stuff like that, but we don't know. We don't also know how the Lightning Network is going to be used. Uh, and it could be used in ways that you know, are super cool that we haven't anticipated. Uh, and like in the early days of lightning, there were some apps where I remember there was like a there was like a kind of whiteboard where you could uh, on the web you go to a web page and you could draw pictures, but it cost you like one sat per pixel, uh, and so people would go to this uh, sort of community wall and they would graffiti it in really cool ways, uh, but it cost them, and, and it was this thing where people would go and, and it's still probably up, and you can go and see what other people have drawn. You know, sometimes it was offensive, sometimes it was funny, but it, that was that's like an application I would never have thought of but was really cool and, and successful in one of the early applications. So we don't know exactly how the Lightning Network is going to work, but I think it's going to make a lot of things possible that have not been possible in our current world because now you can send value instantly, now almost at zero cost with the Lightning Network across the world. And that, that, that's a game changer.
0: I love that. I love to see the convergence of art and Bitcoin because it sometimes it gets ignored, but it's very much. I, I view art so differently, I think, than a lot of people. But I love hearing that. Uh, if anyone in the comments can find that and wants to post the uh, the website, feel free. Uh, I do want to go back to the book, and without giving too much away, there's one property of money that you introduce that's different than a lot of other uh, sort of discussions around the properties of money. And that was the fact that money should be censorship resistant. And you talk a little bit about the idea of we can send it, we can send Bitcoin anywhere in the world. There's no bank, there's no intermediary, no one to say yes or no to this transaction. And frankly, it happens much quicker. Can you discuss a little bit about why you value
1: censorship resistant as far as a property of money? I think censorship resistance has become much more important in our digital world because there's so much more of a risk that Everything we do can be surveilled. In a world where, let's say, you go back two hundred years when they're on a gold standard, uh, it's very hard for a government to surveil what everyone is doing because you have all these private communities just doing stuff, you know, with each other or in their village or whatever it is. But now, with a country like China, they they're, they're talking about creating a financial infrastructure where they own a digital coin, a CBDC. And they can trace everything you do, every purchase you make. They can see where you are at all times. They have cameras everywhere. And and the scary thing about that is that when you put that much power in a central government, they have the the ability to destroy. Uh, Power is really the power to destroy. And, And they can destroy certain groups that they don't like. And you already see this in China where there are minorities, which are really incredibly oppressed and treated very very poorly and there's no way for them to escape because everything they do is seen Uh, so censorship resistance is important because it it allows the freedom for people to live the lives they want in the way they want without someone else saying i don't like that Uh, and even in the west you see so much censorship like if you have uh, a view that's somewhat controversial and, and you want to talk about it on youtube uh, that people have been banned for things like saying that, hey, cloth cloth masks might not be that effective. I mean, it's not a super controversial thing to say. It's like plausible that they're not effective, and people were saying th- th- they don't seem that effective, and they were being kicked off YouTube for that, or, or they were they're being deplatformed in various ways. So that, you know, maybe you can't use PayPal anymore because you've been labeled as someone spouting misinformation, even though the CDC changed their opinion and said, oh, yeah, cloth masks, they may not be effective. So why are we telling people to wear them? So sen- censorship resistance is really important because it gives all of us the freedom to live without someone else telling us that we can't say or do things, which are those are American values. They've been American values since the country was founded. Freedom of speech, freedom of trade, um, freedom to pursue pursue your own happiness. Those are American values, and those are values that Bitcoin makes possible and protects.
0: I love that. I mean, we we witnessed it not even a week ago with the Canadian government stepping in and shutting down GoFundMe for the trucker convoy. We're see, we see on it on the other side of the spectrum where a progressive group down in Cuba had their PayPal donations cut off. We see over in Ukraine. Uh, The resistance over there is collecting donations in Bitcoin as well so to circumvent Russia, potentially blocking any donations coming in. So it's of vital importance as we are fully entrenched in this digital age.
1: Can I just say one thing about that? A lot of people think about censorship in terms of speech and and they understand why, at least in America where we have the First Amendment, they understand why censorship of speech is a bad idea. But actually censorship of value is much scarier and much worse because value and the ability to trade and move value, especially monetary value is fundamental to life. If you don't have the ability to hold your savings and to transfer your savings, you can't live. It's, it's depriving people of their livelihoods. So censorship resistance in money, I think is even more important than censorship resistance in speech. It's an excellent point. I mean, we are
0: essentially compensated for our time and energy output. And if we are not able, I I would even take it a step further, although this is a second property of money that you do discuss. But for money to lose value over time versus just being able to hold it is also a a dangerous concept that we are in the middle of watching all of our dollars and fiat currencies slowly and steadily lose their value. I do want to ask and maybe broaden the discussion a little bit because on the topic of censorship, like our channel, this YouTube channel was was shut down because we triggered an algorithm and we're seeing it happen all over the place on different platforms uh, for different reasons. Ours was over a discussion over Kazakhstan. We've seen it over discussions over the C word. We've seen it discussed over masks where What is something that you are afraid of as we continue to go down this Pandora's box that was opened a year ago, roughly?
1: I mean, one thing that I'm, you know, worried about is the consequence, the polarization of our society, where people use these platforms as a way of stamping out viewpoints that they don't like. What that does is it it really alienates people in our society, where you have a group of people who have been completely deprived of their ability to speak or have a, have any platform to say anything and their ability to trade uh, and those are two fundamental human rights that you need for a flourishing society so i'm really concerned about uh, american society in my view is as polarized as it's ever been perhaps you could go all the way back to like the the battles between the federalists and the anti-federalists like jefferson and adams when when the, the us was really on the brink of a civil war i think the united states is on the brink of a civil war because the polarization that's part in part due to the, the rampant amounts of censorship so Bitcoin is a solution to this. I think it, it, it's good for all of us to have something like Bitcoin because it allows us to live the way we want to live and, and not have other people interfere in that. So I think it's healthy for America as a society. And, and it gives me some hope despite what I see as really dangerous signs of the, the decline of the US and the, the direction the US is going. So it's, it's a, Bitcoin is certainly a glimmer of hope.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like at, at no point has our country been more polarized uh, and it's due frankly in large part to the access of information. So many people in the, in the past didn't didn't know what was really going on. You really only had your local newspaper when radio came about. Those were the sources of news. Now you can get inundated by opening your phone to the wrong app or going on the wrong website. Do you worry though that this sort of separation of values where certain people who value one thing are going and having conversations on one platform. People who values other things or opposing ideas are going having conversations on other platforms. Is that further separating us in your mind or is that something that can create almost this safe environment so that we're not censoring within these communities?
1: I actually think that's really healthy and it's almost like a version of federalism. The United States was a country that was founded based on the idea that people are different and they should find the community that matches their values and they should move to that community and you had this long history in America of people moving west you know the, the Puritans left England because they wanted to escape the king and then the Quakers moved west because they wanted to escape the Puritans and then the Mormons moved west because they wanted to escape the the Puritans and 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 the Quakers so people finding their own community, which they share values, I think is very healthy, especially because then those communities can trade with each other peacefully rather than be in conflict and say, well, we need to force ourselves to live together. We need to have, you know, one side rule over the other and, you know, switch between each other and get more and more antagonistic. I think the real problem in American society is we've lost that federalism. we are power a lot of power was concentrated in localities and in states a lot of power now is in the federal government which is centralized power and what that means is the centralized government becomes a weapon for each side to get control of and to use against their enemies if the central power didn't exist people would have the opportunity to find their community and most of the decisions would be made locally and if you didn't like those decisions go to another community that's real freedom. and That's real choice. So I don't see it as bad people finding their own niches or communities on the internet. I think that's good for peaceful cooperation that people find the values that they like. And then when they want to interact with other people, they do so peacefully and not through the use of centralized power.
0: I mean, you, you put it very, very well. And thank you for explaining it as such. I do want to go back a little bit now to to bitcoin and have more conversations just i view you as one of the biggest bitcoin bulls out there having written books titled the bullish case for bitcoin what are what are things that in the next 12 to 18 months that you really want to see happen as far as bitcoin whether it be on a political stage whether it be in an economic stage or whether it just be in a social stage
1: yeah, so we're in an interest, interesting stage of Bitcoin's development where we now have corporations uh, getting involved in earning Bitcoin, adding it to their treasury nation states. We have one nation state now that's adopted Bitcoin as as legal tender. Those are things that I didn't expect, especially the nation state part would happen as quickly as they had. I expected the nation state nation states to start adopting Bitcoin maybe one or two cycles from now. So it would be great to see more of that. I'm hoping that over the next you know two years or so we start seeing individual American states adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. I know there's an effort in Texas. Uh, there's a, a, a race for the governorship and the. One of the candidates has said if he becomes governor, the first thing he will do is make Bitcoin legal tender in Texas. So I I would love to see more of that. I think more regulatory sort of clarity and certainty would be good. I think the the financial sector is being held back a little bit by the fact that there are a lot of different things in the Bitcoin market that are completely unclear, like tax treatment and um, accounting rules and stuff like that. Uh, and that really does make a difference. Like Michael Saylor has mentioned this, that the way they account for Bitcoin on their balance sheet, they can only you know, change the value, which is actually important when a company holds an asset to be able to correctly account for it. So the market can say what the company is worth. When Bitcoin goes down, they can account for it. But when it goes up, they can't account for it. So if Bitcoin goes up 10X, MicroStrategy as a company should be worth a lot more but the accounting rules don't let them actually explicitly say that they have assets that are worth a lot more. So there needs to be a lot of regulatory fixes uh, to make it easier for players and companies in the space to come in in, and uh, provide products. We we are still a ways away from there. And I think what's going to help is that adoption is continuing to increase and politicians are now seeing this a big opportunity they can talk about being pro bitcoin and get votes from independent-minded voters that who would otherwise you know not be affiliated with either party because bitcoin is a generally fairly independent thinking people at least the people who are Bitcoiners today there is you know uh, a small but important demographic and so i think a politician going to recognize that's an important demographic to win over And Michael Saylor said this really well, you're never going to win any votes by being anti-Bitcoin, but you can win a lot of votes by being pro-Bitcoin. And so what you'll see is more and more politicians getting into Congress who are pro-Bitcoin, and then you're going to see the legislation. So I think that process is probably going to take two to five years before the regulatory environment improves a lot. And hopefully over that period of time, we'll see more nation states and corporations getting on board as well.
0: Uh, My producer, Chris, was reading my mind because as you're talking about this, I love to be optimistic. I love to be open-minded. However, I've come to a point with political leaders where I just recognize there's a lot of words said and a lot of promises unkept. Do we, in the Bitcoin community, and then more specifically for yourself, do we want to, again, continue to trust these politicians when they say, we're going to run on a Bitcoin platform? but not really knowing what those decisions will look like
1: once they actually have that power. Generally do not trust politicians. Uh, there are some exceptions of politicians who I think really do understand Bitcoin and have good intent. Senator Lummis has been a Bitcoiner for a long time. And I think especially politicians who, have, who own Bitcoin uh, and who've understood it through their own personal experience, I generally think want the best for, it, for for Bitcoin. And I think there are actually quite a few already in Congress. I'd say probably in the order of 20 of them, like two or three senators, which is pretty important. A senator has a lot of power. Two or three senators who really do understand Bitcoin pretty well. Ted Cruz is an example. When you listen to Ted Cruz talk about Bitcoin, he, he gets it. And he gets mining as well, which is really cool because it's good for his state. It's good for the energy grid in his state. And there's probably about 20 congressmen in the House who have a pretty good sense for Bitcoin. But you're right, don't don't trust them. You need to show them the political gains that they can get by supporting Bitcoin. That's how uh, we're going to win. And there are groups out there, uh, many who I've spoken to, who are behind the scenes talking to politicians, explaining what is the uh, political advantage of supporting Bitcoin, what are the talking points that you need to use to reach people who are excited by Bitcoin? And what are the political actions you need to take that will make the US more friendly towards Bitcoin? So there are people who are working on this lobbying behind the scenes to try and make this happen. And we need that. There, every other industry has think tanks and lobbyists. I think it's healthy for Bitcoin to have this because I think it helps to accelerate the adoption Um, And I'm one of the people who doesn't think Bitcoin is inevitable. And I think it's dangerous to believe it's inevitable. I think we need to treat it as something that's still young in its infancy and at risk. And we need to do everything we can across the spectrum from development of the technology, from marketing, from uh, political action. We, We need to do absolutely everything to make sure that Bitcoin thrives and not just sort of sit back and say, oh, this is inevitable, it's going to happen. Because it's not. It really isn't. And and the threat of nation states becoming hostile to Bitcoin still exists. Maybe in the future, maybe in five years from now, there'll be so much political capture. There'll be so many politicians who are pro-Bitcoin that an attack on Bitcoin is very, very unlikely. And Bitcoin has become inevitable, but we're not there yet.
0: We have to unpack this a little bit because, to be honest, it it has been a question that's been presented of, We talk on this show, we talk in the community so much about it is inevitable. We talk about the pros of it. What are these fears? Like you touch on a little bit, nation states attacking the network, whether it be through capturing miners or whatever other uh, instances of them doing it, but what are some examples of fears you have? Let's use this as a rallying cry for our community to be able to pay attention to and, and stay ahead of those attacks.
1: Yeah, so this is something I cover in a lot of detail in my book. And actually, I think that's one of the things that people liked or appreciated in in the article. I wasn't just um, pumping Bitcoin. I, I wanted to be honest about the risks, and I do think there are real risks. Probably the biggest risk in my mind is innate or not just a single nation state attacking bitcoin but a coordinated nation state attack where you have nations say wow actually if bitcoin becomes widely adopted this is going to we're going to lose control over monetary policy and monetary policy is one of the most important sovereign powers that any nation has and to give that up or to lose that is, is a very scary thing for central banks around the world. And they're starting to understand that. They really are. They're, they're getting that first inkling that, hey, if Bitcoin keeps going up, we're not going to be able to control interest rates anymore. We're not going to be able to print as much money because people will just flee from our currencies and move into the dollar. And then the, the currency loses its value and the, the ability to inflate uh, is completely diminished. So it's certainly possible at, at some point in the future nation states get together and say, we need to ban this thing because it's getting out of control. It's too big. It's worth now. I mean, you could imagine if it gets to the size of gold, 10 trillion, and it's on the upswing where it could become like a 20 or 30 or $50 trillion asset, That nation states around the world are going to panic and say, okay, we need to ban ownership of Bitcoin, or we need to ban mining, or we need to ban transfer. There's certain things that they could do, which could really harm Bitcoin. And I think that's possible. The the chance of it happening is certainly diminishing over time, but it's not inevitable that that won't happen. We need to work on on these politicians and, and we need to work on corporations as well, because the good thing about corporations adopting Bitcoin is they're much, much better lobbyists than retail investors. Like you and I, we're not good lobbyists. Like we can maybe send out some tweets or... or or say, I won't vote for you, but that's far less powerful than corporations going and lobbying governments because they're good at that. They've done it for a long time. They have all sorts of of organizational infrastructure in Washington, D.C. And when corporations and banks get on board and it's in their interest to defend Bitcoin, Bitcoin will be a lot safer.
0: I I do want to shout out very quickly uh, the team over at Sat Center who is making these pushes, who are talking to different legislators and different campaigns to help them craft and discuss Bitcoin in an intelligent way. So shout out to the teams over at Sat Center and thank you for doing the work that VJ is describing already. Vijay, I think we have time for a couple of more questions and I do wanna sort of maybe get some, have a little bit of fun with this, but do you have a price prediction for end of year
1: that you're looking towards? I am so bad at price predictions. Yeah, I don't like making price predictions because, I and I'll be honest with you, I don't know what Bitcoin is going to do in the short term, but my bullishness is for the long term. I really believe in in the timeframe of 50 years that Bitcoin will be the reserve currency of the world. In the shorter term, I I think it's incredibly likely that bitcoin achieves the market capitalization of gold because gold is bitcoin's closest cousin in the family of financial assets they're both non-sovereign stores of value Uh, but bitcoin is superior to gold in in a lot of different ways so it makes sense to me in the time frame of say five to ten years that bitcoin achieves the same capitalization of gold which is at least it's more than 10x from from here so I, i think over the next five years or so I would not be surprised at all for Bitcoin to be somewhere in the order of 500,000.
0: I hope you plebs heard that. We're going we're to take notes and we're going to come find you in five years, VJ. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, we saw China ban Bitcoin mining. We've seen India talk about, we're going to ban cryptocurrencies and very quickly, no, we're going to introduce a 30% tax. Russia is doing almost identical to... India, balking on what the finance minister said, now introducing legislation to make it legalized in Russia. What is sort of, as you see these countries in Asia, as we see Latin America make moves forward, we're hearing conversations out of the Middle East as well. What is sort of the next region that you're keeping your eye on as far as adopting Bitcoin uh, as either legal tender or as a currency?
1: I think probably the United States, that might sound a little bit weird, but I'm thinking at the level of states, states like Florida and Texas and New York, which are all kind of competing with each other. And this was part of the vision of America at the beginning, that the, the states themselves would compete with each other for talent and capital, and they would make their states better because of that. I mean, the... Periods of human history where you saw the greatest flourishing is when you had small nation states competing with each other, like the Renaissance. So I think we're going to see states within the United States compete with each other to be the most friendly to Bitcoin. And how could you be any more friendly than making Bitcoin legal tender in your state? So the United States is where I'm I'm looking to see the most movement on the regulatory front in in the next, say, two to three years. very it's both bullish as well
0: as not not an opinion that I've necessarily heard discussed on this show. So thank you for sharing that. You know, we saw, what was it? I believe it was Arizona introduced it, a bill as well. We have a senator over in Wyoming. And, and I personally believe it'll be Wyoming before Texas, just because mm-hmm. there needs to be something there. What are your thoughts on the migration of miners stateside? Does this worry you or is this a net positive for Bitcoin?
1: I think it's hugely positive. And if you think about it, if you had like a 10,000-foot perspective, if you're like an alien looking at the earth from very high up, you would almost think that China was incredibly pro-Bitcoin. Because for 10 years, they subsidized mining by providing cheap electricity to the Bitcoin. Bitcoin network and miners gravitated towards China. And then it got to the point where it was scary because there was such a large concentration of miners in China and they could easily like nationalize or confiscate the the mining infrastructure. And at the point where it became scary after subsidizing it for so long, they said, we're going to ban mining. And they decentralized it. Miners went all around the world and and it made the the network so much more resilient. And it made it so that miners now, Uh, account for regulatory certainty as an important cost of mining instead of just assuming when they go somewhere, oh, it's cheap, but we don't care about what might happen with the politics, they think about the politics too, and so what they've done is they've moved their miners to places which are friendly to Bitcoin, so that has made the network much more politically resilient. Because now mining is in places like Texas and El Salvador and and various parts of the the world, which are much more friendly towards mining. And the risk now of China nationalizing miners is gone. (laughs) So the Bitcoin network now is is stronger and and more resilient than it's ever been in its history. And China kind of did us a big favor for for the history of mining. They both subsidized it and then they, they... Uh, decentralized it when it became too concentrated in China. So thank you, China, for doing that.
0: (laughs) You're absolutely right. I mean, I I also highlight and bring up, it it essentially spread the hash rate globally. Is there though, you touched on if, if a few nation states decide to wage war against Bitcoin, their combined hash rate could exceed sort of that threshold. Is there a percentage sort of cap that you'd like to see nation states have as far as hash rate goes?
1: That's uh, very hard to control. So I think even if I'd like to say that no nation state should have more than 5%, it's very hard to control that. I think what's more important, though, is Bitcoin miners move to jurisdictions which are politically friendly and where there's a lot of political capture. Political capture is where you get real protection. Where When you have the politicians who have bought into Bitcoin, uh, both financially and ideologically, that's where you get real protection because you're not going to have an attack on the network when all the politicians are pro-Bitcoin. So I, I'm really happy that to see so much of the hash rate moving to places like Texas.
0: Is there a, a country outside of the US that excites you as far as uh, mining goes?
1: Oh, obviously El, El Salvador, because uh, you know the, the leader, the president of the nation is so pro-Bitcoin, and this idea of creating a Bitcoin city where you harness the energy of a volcano. I mean, how cool is that? You're using a volcano, a live volcano to fund Bitcoin mining. It's just awesome.
0: It really is. I mean, I I always love pounding the drum that we do need to create a new iteration of what clean energy really looks like. And the only way you do that is who has the best incentive or most incentive to figure that out. And it is the Bitcoin community. You see it with mining, you see it up north with the hydroelectric energy capture. Is there a different form of energy capture beyond volcanoes, beyond hydroelectric that you're looking at to see power Bitcoin miners?
1: Yeah. Actually, in Texas, there's uh, the development of miners, very decentralized mining operations where they get very small rigs and they go to these gas fields where uh, they've tapped the gas field And and what they have to do when when they're no longer using it is they have to flare the gas because these gases going up into the uh, atmosphere are far, far worse than CO2. It's like orders of magnitude worse. So there's regulations where they have to burn it off. But instead of doing that, and and they're burning off probably like 98% of the gases, but there's still some leakage of the gases. Whereas if you set up a Bitcoin mining rig, you're going to get like, 99.9% of that energy and you're going to convert it and capture that gas and use it for Bitcoin mining. So this is good for the environment. The narrative that Bitcoin is bad for the environment is so misleading. It's probably the most misleading narrative out there about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is good for the environment. It's good for sustainable energy production. uh, And it's good for capturing things that are harmful for the environment and setting up profitable, mining operations that can capture this harmful gas because there are a lot of places where even though there's regulations to sort of flare off this gas and destroy it so it doesn't hurt the environment where people aren't even bothering to do that because it's like costly to set up, set it up. And so the gas is just going straight up into the environment. Now there's an economic incentive to fix the problem. And that's what you want. Problems get solved when there's an economic incentive to solve them, not when governments say, oh, you have to solve this. If it's profitable to make the earth more environmentally safe because you're taking away from these gases and using them for something... Then it will happen, and, and so I'm very excited by that. And I know there's a there's a a couple of companies. One of them is called Giga Energy. It's a small company which is doing this. It's uh it's growing its operation very quickly because there's a huge opportunity in Texas for exact doing exactly this.
0: Thank you for highlighting that. I I think not enough people know what's going on as far as these type of developments go. I was explaining uh, upstream data to my cousin last week, and he he didn't his mind couldn't wrap around it that there's just energy being wasted throughout all these processes that have existed for so long um we really need to go back to first principles on some of these processes and figure out ways to capitalize on energy waste uh my producer chris wanted to point it out and, and absolutely right methane is 25 to 40 times worse than co2 for the atmosphere so it just goes to show you again the narrative that's told to us may not necessarily be the whole truth. It's just part of the truth that fits what they need to accomplish. Uh, Vijay, this has been so much fun. I don't want to steal you all day, even though I could probably talk to you for hours on end. Everyone, please, if you have not read already, go get your copy of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. This is the cover. Vijay, where can our audience find you? Anywhere else online?
1: I... I- Tweet about Bitcoin and economics and maybe a little bit of politics as well at real underscore vj. So R-E-A-L underscore V-I-J-A-Y. Uh, and you can find my book on Amazon or you can find my article on Medium. Just Google for it and you'll, you'll find it. Yeah, that's that's the best way.
0: Awesome, VJ. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we hope to have you back and we'll continue this conversation another time.
1: Thanks, Q. And thanks, Chris. Yeah.